This is Urban Tiger Radio, a project supported by CybermouseMultimedia.com, sponsors of our free weekly podcasts. Search for Urban Tiger Radio in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher.com and hit the subscribe button to receive free automatic downloads. Please remember to share and rate our show before you leave. Hi, this is Bill Allerton again from Urban Tiger Radio and I'm bringing you side two of Verse and Worse, Pieces of Eight from Sheffield's Healy Writers. Healy Writers probably doesn't exist anymore and I have to remind you right now that this tape was produced in 1991 and these poems are rescued from an old cassette tape that I have here, thankfully in pretty good condition. So the quality is not quite as good as it might have been when it was recorded. I'm not referring to the quality of the poetry, although that may in itself be suspect, but that's entirely a subjective experience. Now, the other thing was, because these were written in 1991 or pre-1991, the morals of today's society may have changed somewhat compared to uh, to some of the poetry that's on here. So uh, suspend your... Um, prejudices and have a good listen to what was around and about in 1991. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of what's on here now. I'm going to introduce each one individually as we go along. But I will tell you that the first one is Writer's Workshop by Andy Howe. Now, Andy Howe was, or is, a scientist actually, and I do believe he's a molecular chemist and Andy Howe is a very intelligent guy, very well spoken, very, very nice fella, especially when he consumed about half a gallon of my homemade red wine at a party and barbecue I had, uh, probably in about 2000. So anyway, uh, I haven't seen you for a long time, Andy Howe, but if you happen to listen to this, I wish you well, and I hope you're doing well. And uh, here we have it, Writer's Workshop by Andy Howe. First impressions being so important, I made a special effort to convince myself that they weren't. Why do I only seem to equip myself well at things I'm not bothered about? First touch of real interest or enthusiasm, and bang, I've blown it. Philosophical semantics, I couldn't care less about that, bores me silly. So I could probably do great at that, world expert. Anyway, I thought, as long as I made a good first impression... Perhaps I could risk unleashing, no, leaking the odd drop of enthusiasm in later meetings. Writer's Workshop? A strange title. What the devil do they wish to convey by workshop? If they were that good with words, you thought that aspiring Shakespeare's would be able to dream up a better title for themselves. I wondered what workshoppers would be like. Pompously affected working class, looking down on me for being so pompous and middle class. Or pompous middle class looking down on me for not being so pompous and middle class as them. Rising stars and has-beens who have a niche in the scheme of things. Or no-hopers and never-wasies who come because it's their only chance of an audience. I was vaguely interested to find out, but not really bothered. I could just see what it was like, then take it or leave it. Good. That was just the right frame of mind. So I stopped circling the block. Besides, it was now sufficiently late to be sure that a good number had assembled. In I went, folder in hand, containing my written offering, not expecting anything too drastic. I was soon put off my guard, though. I was picking up all sorts of threads, and they all seemed to be wrong. There were certainly a lot more people than I expected. 
and I thought I was the newcomer, the fish out of water, the one with some right to be nervous and make a fool of himself, but they all seemed more apprehensive than I was. It was also pretty quiet. Some were whispering in huddles, others were sitting down, reading some notes, or just fidgeting. The seats were laid out theatre-style, which itself didn't fit with any of my alternative preconceptions of a workshop. And everyone seemed to have the same sort of look about them somehow, despite differences in sex, race, and age. They were all dressed rather cheerlessly, for one thing, with a preponderance of black. Mind you, I noticed, even with some surprise, that I hadn't to have chosen a black jumper and cords. There were smiley faces, though, albeit rather nervous and shaky. I got loads of glances, often with a look of near recognition on their part, although I didn't know any of them from Adam or Eve, but no one seemed prepared to address me. Indeed, I approached one couple, but they backed away as if I had just intended to get past. There was plenty of room to have got round them, so I felt they couldn't really have thought that was my intention. I let it go, and ambled on with a smile of thanks. They replied with surprisingly warm smiles, before lowering their eyes sheepishly and continuing their quiet conversation. Something was wrong. I thought I must have come on the wrong night. Goodness knows what society this was who'd meeting I'd blundered into. But I was sure this was the same date and location which the bloke had given me over the phone. There was a knot of five people nearby. I would go up to them and actually speak to them before they had a chance to shuffle away. The woman amongst them, though, didn't look like she'd ever shuffled away from anything. Not a piece of work I'd like to bump into down a dark alley. Rather beautiful, but not in the least bit attractive. Indeed, almost scary. Excuse me, I said, supposedly to the whole group, but I somehow couldn't take my eyes off the woman. I was expecting this to be the writer's workshop. Yes, indeed, answered one of the blokes, forcing my eyes to change subject. And then he checked who I was by name. He was expecting me. And judging by the sudden warmth and friendliness from the group, they all were... It was a complete change. That mysterious female now seemed to be a cheerful, simple soul who I'd really like to get to know. They all seemed so vulnerable somehow, and looked as if they all knew it. I smiled at them, probably rather lamely. "'Can I get you a drink?' the first fellow asked me, pointing to a punch bowl at one side of the podium, as yet undisturbed and flanked by a neat array of crystal glasses. I declined, and he agreed it was best left later.' and he was so obsequious about it. Something was most definitely wrong. This was no writer's workshop. Yet I had challenged them, and they had claimed it was, and I was now being welcomed like some sort of hero. I was being introduced to loads of them, and they all seemed to look up to me in respect. Whatever this thing was I was riding, I wanted to get off. It was getting quite frightening, in spite of all their warmth and humility. All these weird, weird people. The procession of smiley but often nervous faces all saying how pleased they were to meet me, was accompanied by my apparent host, giving out the string of names. These washed over me at first. I knew there'd be no hope of remembering any, but eventually I realised he was prefixing them all with some term. I still couldn't quite tune in to what the term was. Yes, it was brother or sister. Sounds like we're all in holy orders, I commented, trying to do so lightly. My host laughed rather apprehensively. Those others nearby took his lead. Yes, of course, he blithered. It should only be novice. The procession had gone off the rails, and my host led me rather embarrassedly to the podium. The crowd started to sit themselves down in readiness. 
I'm sorry to have indulged like this, said my host. Perhaps you would much prefer to start your address. He pointed to the podium. Then I noticed the cloth draped over the lectern. It was marked with a golden pentagram. I just didn't know how to take it all in. Whoever they were, they were looking up to me as some sort of role model, or superstar even. Whatever else they thought, if they thought I was going to climb up onto that stage and address them, they had another thing coming. I asked my host where the loo was. He looked a bit surprised, saying something odd, like, You have realised who you are, father, but pointed me back towards the door. Why, I'll never know, but I put my folder down on the podium before marching off through the audience. When I got to the door, there was no going back for it. I just ran out and down the hill. If they bothered to look in the folder, I bet my short story was nothing like they were expecting for their address. Mind you, it was a pretty weird story. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, pretty weird stories, here's one from uh, my old friend, Mike Hoy. I say he's my old friend because we're all getting old these days, uh, me and Mike particularly. And his story is called Looking Conspicuous. Now, there is something I need to tell you about Mike. Mike has always looked conspicuous, so the poem is no excuse. Mike used to turn up to Healy Writers with a denim jacket on and jeans and a confederate forage cap and a silver grey ponytail, a little beard and moustache and an extremely weather-beaten face that made him look like he'd been a very, very handsome ship's figurehead. But that's Mike, so you couldn't miss him. In fact, you still can't. I saw him a few weeks ago now and he's he's changed very, very little at all. Uh, Me, I've got fatter, older and a little more verbose than I used to be. So, Here's Looking Conspicuous by Mike Hoy. It's an handicap looking conspicuous. Inside I'm right conventional. All I've ever wanted is a proper home, a wife and a Ford Cortina. But my appearance is against me. I noticed how much worse I was looking last winter when I saw myself in this pub mirror. I'd been wearing some tight green velvet trousers from Oxfam shop, a metallic looking shirt from a thrift store in California and some simulated leopard skin shoes from reject stall at market. Me clothes aren't being ironed, me hair looked a right mess. I'd not had it cut since I'd stopped seeing this hairdresser last twelve months before, and I'd not washed or combed it since I'd had a brief scene with a vegan anarchist. She'd been called parsley, and she said if you just ignored your hair, it would turn itself into dreadlocks. Seeing myself in that mirror made me realise why I'd been finding it difficult to get a normal relationship. At the time, I was sleeping with a manic depressive who took her clothes off a lot. That evening, when I got home, she'd been arrested for stripping in Sainsbury's. I did the only thing I could think of in circumstances. I got on a plane to Greece next day. I actually intended to go to America, but I stopped for an haircut, and Barber used to live in Greece, and he made it sound like paradise. I always need a drink to get over trauma having me hair cut, and I make big herbit in King and Cabbage. He usually plays lead guitar in a geriatric rock band called Zodiacs, but he'd landed a job on a liner cruising med and calling it Greek Islands. I copied down some of his dates and told him I'd see him in Corfu. Billy Barmaid gave me a dress of someone she knew on Dexos, and it seemed as if fate were beckoning me to Greece. Well, she had a cosh in her other hand. For a kick-off, Dexos were no bigger than Attercliff, and Billy's friend weren't all laid back like typical Greeks. He were more like something out of faulty towers. 
To be fair, he did give me a cheap half-completed chalet, but I could have died there. People are never sympathetic about accidents that happen in bathroom. If you cut yourself on a kitchen can opener or electrocute yourself on a light fitting in lounge, it's not usually a cause of hilarity, but anything that happens in bathroom is. Getting your toe trapped in a tap can be tragic or your bum stuck in a lavatory seat. This chalet were half a mile away from anywhere and I could have perished from starvation locked in loo. Door were dead solid and I'd come in naked for a shower. I didn't have a, even have a shoe to kick with. There were a small glassless window but it was six inches from the shell of a second empty incomplete chalet and it were impossible to wriggle between buildings. I did manage to squeeze up onto the roof losing half a yard of skin on way. It were like crawling onto an hot plate with slates like carving knives cutting into me flesh. The ground on that side were thick with rusty tin cans, broken bottles and bits of dead motor scooter so I hopped over crown at roof like a paraplegic go-go dancer and discovered that half population of Dexos were passing on the way to a football match or maybe to a religious ceremony. They thought it were dead hilarious me leaping about like a giant pink frog for rest of weak people pointed at me in the street and burst out laughing. I were right disillusioned with Greece so I were chuffed when I caught up with Big Herbert's cruise liner in Corfu. He were gobsmacked to see me, and a bit embarrassed on account of this American lass he were with. Well, I'm a good friend of Herbert's missus, see. Still, he took me back to the ship for a few jars before he had to play on band. It were a good boat, we a cinema, a dance hall and eight bars. It were from USSR and crew were Russian but not passengers, which seemed a bit unsocialist to me. Booze were dead cheap and band were all on the way to becoming alcoholics except Big Herbert who got lucky with this young girl, Sarah. I stayed to watch him perform, the band, not Big Herbert and Sarah. They would play some rock and roll and I were a minor sensation bopping about in me Stars and Stripes t-shirt. Big Herbert told me that ship were due to sail. But I met this Swedish last and I just wanted to blend into the landscape. The band were playing Moon River and I stayed to have a smooch. Big Herbert were crooning away thinking I'd gone when he spotted me cuddling this Swede. Bloody hell, Dixie, get off, will ye? You? You'll get me sent to Siberia. People look shocked. Well, he don't fit into the lyrics of Moon River, does it? If it had kept his big mouth shut, I might have snuck up with Swedish lass and got away with it. As it were, I had to try and get off ship. It were like a bloody maze, and I got collared by KGB. They accused me of trying to stow away, just because I brought me bag on board. I offered to work me passage, scrub deck or drive ship or something, but they locked me up until next stop, as if I were going to run away in middle of ocean. Only person I saw were Big Herbert, and he were furious with me. I told him he'd only got himself to blame if he were in doghouse. I'd not told anyone I knew him. I don't think it were my fault they refused to renew his contract to end at voyage. It'd have been all right if you hadn't made me look conspicuous on dance floor, I told him. Conspicuous, he screamed. You dress like a circus clown and dance like a spastic tornado. You were born bloody conspicuous. Well, there you have it. Some people are born conspicuous. Others make themselves so. And no more so than the person that Reenie Crofts managed to pick up one Friday night, or at least I think it was Friday night. Might have been a Saturday. I can't remember. Anyway, that's memory for you. Probably Reenie can't remember now either. But 
she met up with a guy that she called the Spangled Knight. Here it is with Rene Crofts. An old school pal asked me to go out in a group of young women. I was tired of knitting and reading, so I said I'd go. It took me hours to get ready. I backcombed my hair, piled it high and lacquered it. I fixed my false eyelashes in place and borrowed Al Mavis's eye makeup. I mascara them and caked my lids and underneath thick black. I made cotton wool pads to fill my bra out a bit. I put my stiff frilled waist slip on to make my frock stand out and my white stiletto heels. Last, I glued my plastic crimson devil nails in place. We called in a couple of quiet pubs down Ely, making our way to the Locarno. By ten o'clock, dance hall were packed, and group were really lively. Everybody got twisting, and I were really in a dancing mood. Lead guitarist had this spangled white suit on, with great wide shoulders, open fronted, with no shirt. His dark chest were like a curly rug, and his wide flared trousers. His hair was slick black, with a quiff that bobbed as he rocked. He jerked his pelvis, knocking his knees to the rhythm. I was fascinated. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Way moved. He seemed friendly, smiling at me and nodding. Well, I didn't need much encouraging, so I gets up to join in the twisting. I didn't reckon much to it. I couldn't seem to keep my feet going in coordination. So I stood there, looking at this fantastic lead guitarist, and he kept on smiling at me. I started to sway from side to side, and as the beat got faster, I rocked. Before I knew it, I was waving my arms about and gyrating. One of my falses slipped from my bra, so I tried to nudge it back in place with my upper arm. Then they all stopped twisting and encircled me. As the music quickened, they clapped and stomped and chanted, Go, 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 go. I played up to them, keeping up with the throb. When the music stopped, they all cheered me, and the shimmering night swaggered from the stage and towards me, smiling, and his flares flapping up dust, and I knew I clicked. Is it Mavis? he said. Between gasps I said, No, she's my sister. He twirled and sauntered away. I were that embarrassed I ran off, out and down a corridor to the loo. My scar was streaming down my face. I used one of my cotton wool pads to wipe it, but that just spread it about. One of my eyelashes had slipped pinning me eyelid down so that I were blind in one eye. Me beehive had collapsed round me ears and I'd lost three false nails. Oh, have you been raped? Me mum said when I got home. No, 
I said. I've just invented go-go dancing. Well, Rini Crofts was the original Healy Writer's go-go-go-girl. Uh, Rini had some wonderful stories about being the fastest wheelie bin in the West and uh, all sorts of strange characters that she used to meet and bring to us as short stories or poetry. Right, now we're going from the merely physical into the metaphysical, I think, for the next couple of items, one of which is called Now and Then by Mike Hoy again. And this is uh, God-related and in some way or other, and that's followed by another poem of a perhaps a similar nature, but there you go, I'll get to tell you about that one when we get to it. Now and Then by Mike Hoy. Then God, or the universe if you prefer, rolled cosmic joints and turned on high, rode rainbow harleys across the sky, the sun danced with the moon to a rock and roll tune, covering the streets with roses, kissing sunflowers on their noses, old enemies turned into friends and wheelchairs became Mercedes Benz, politicians ran for cover, police arrested one another, school kids gave their teachers tests and Mary Whitehouse got undressed, we had more booze than we could up and united won the FA Cup. Now, overdosed, completely pissed, God's helpless on the danger list. The ailing son, a dying ember, draws his pension come December, while hordes of new men roll and hop through the gate towards your cop. Their cheering bursts my stupid head as I'm crushed in the stampede to your bed. Now, this poem's something of a curiosity. This is probably about the second thing that I ever wrote, I think. And when you hear it, you'll understand how fresh and new I was to writing any kind of poetry, uh, much less extended metaphorical jokes. So this is quite a naive tale of about, in days long gone, when gods were gods. And this is called Godly Toys by Bill Allerton. In days long gone, when gods were gods and wouldn't stand for silly sods like us who try to fornicate with everything that passes gate, they tried to formulate a plan to put the mockers on the race of man. The plan was drawn in temples quiet while down below man caused a riot. The gods all struggled hard to think, while man was somewhat worse for drink. They cried, what price our heavenly bliss, while man is down there on the piss. A kind of god so seldom heard said mankind's fate should be deferred. Not genocide, don't wipe them out. Give them something to think about. So in man's hands they placed a bow without a sharp and said, Now go and leave us here in peace. See what you can do with these. A god returning from a task was pained to stop and quickly ask what ultimate joy gave birth to the other godlings' endless mirth. They told him then of their new plan to haunt the soul of little man. You've often seen or heard their racket. We warned them they were copper packet. They run and spread like some disease, disturbing us while at our ease. We couldn't stand it any more. So we gave the little bastards war. Then man began his headlong flight into his deepest, darkest night. He struggled long to save society, becoming strong in his sobriety, until the day the war was won and the wine again allowed to run. 
Man's spirit now began to rise and raise their tumult to the skies. It drifted up and caught the ears of gods and reinforced their fears that man had conquered godly ploys and returned to make ungodly noise. Another meet was swiftly held, ideas forming in the meld of ancients groping in the dark for ways to dampen mankind's spark. A god rose up, I'll stop the noise, let's give them bigger, better toys. Now in man's hands they placed a gun and said, Now go and see what fun you can find to have with this. We'll teach you to go on the piss. As mankind's soul began to buckle, the gods looked down and suppressed a chuckle. Mankind fought on a lonely war. The battles ran, the blood ran more, until against the gods they railed. Thank man that common sense prevailed. Then from their gods they tried to hide, but were noticed in their mannish pride, for blood had made of man a glutton. The gods leaned down, gave him a button, saying, Take away this final toy. Amuse yourselves and don't annoy us in our reverie. Just go and be all you can be. Cease this constant rising clamour. Enjoy your game with Lucifer's hammer. Mankind had long had time to think. The war had kept him from the drink. He'd found in him a god's ability to strip war down to its futility. As one they lifted up their eyes and poured their scorn into the skies. Return to gods their demon war. Of bloodshed we will have no more. Man backed away each from his neighbour and settled down once more to labour for peace and love and all that's right. No more descent to endless night. Man strove hard in search of change, his attitudes to rearrange until the fight against himself was won, then stepped once more into the sun. Mankind would now be well advised to dwell in peace beneath pale skies that harbour gods who in their spite may cast man to eternal night. The toys are ours, they won't go away. And if they're used one fateful day, our future will be etched in brass and lacquered, and mankind well and truly naked. Some time ago I wrote a sequence of poetry that began with the train and ended with the journey back. In between those two major poems were smaller poems about the war, First World War actually, seen from both sides and then a piece of the Second World War in there, Bomber's Moon, which if you've listened to my podcast you will have come across. And this is one of a woman left behind when her husband was in the 1418 war. And it was the experiences that she went through. It was a strange time because so many people got killed, no one knew who was coming back. You could uh, behave yourself for four years and then still find yourself with no partner at the end of it. So maybe people had a different take on life then. I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, I escaped it by a few decades. So here is When He Went Off to France by Bill Allerton. The mornings were the best, my pet. They felt like playing cards of different suits, but all the same in shape and size. We didn't notice how they stole away the march of time and tied us to our roots. He liked to walk to work, you see. He didn't care if it was rain or shine. As long as enough snap was tucked in his bag and he couldn't feel the pavement through his boots, his little world was fine. But when he was in France, hey, sorry, pet, no, nothing much. I was up each day for half past four, you know, and rattled out the Yorkshire range, took the ashes to the bin, and fed him up to quarter past five, and showed him to the door. 
I'll hit the copper with a match on Mondays, and there was always just that half a chance your eyebrows might go in the flash, where you dragged out the dolly and leaned on the posher, and dreamed of when he were in France. You know, when he went to France, we were all noble lasses, and some of us barely half-grown, and I've just thought of the night he came home with a mangle. It was all green enamel and brown paper and string, and the first thing I'd ever had knew of my own. It lived on the cellar head six days at a time, and was covered by fold upon fold of old sheets and curtains, and for a few months I'd polished the rails and admired the wheels and the erotic wood handle that I liked to hold. I tell you, we were no more than soft bits of girls, and I can still feel the skirts as I swish to the door to pick up the letters and find out if I was still war bride or widow, but looking back, none of it hurts. So what were we to do, and with a young woman's fancies and wants? But I remember the way that he dozed in that chair with a fag in his fingers till it burned right down, and he'd jump and he'd snort with no depth in his eyes, and that tumbling shock of white hair. We took great pride in our menfolk, but all of us scared by the love that we held for each one. And we prayed they'd return before their faces were blurred, or we'd wake in the night and knowing cold fear that we no longer shared the same sun. We all had the same look of loss in our eyes. The winters were lonely, the nights cold and dark. When the king emptied our arms, then gave them his own. But we'd have loved them to death and not sent them out where the cannon shells stutter and bark. We were just slips of things, and you know he didn't miss a day out of forty-three years. As I remember him now, he'd say, Ta-ra, lass, like he said in his youth, when that khaki-clad train pulled away through a flood of our tears. And we wanted them back, because we were only just kids, and we'd been asked to carry the weight and the world, and we'd never had time to see how it should go. And if we got it wrong, then our children would see, and instead of their love, we'd have hate. He was too old for the next one, thank God, and the kids far too young, when deserted new brides lost their shame, and favoured the butcher and the coal merchant's lad, and were scolded by mothers who should have bitten their tongues, because I knew them when they were the same. When he went to France, you see, we became more single than most single girls, but we had nothing to lose, having lost it before, and the men that were left knew we wouldn't tell tales, so we didn't need flounces and curls. And I remember so well how it felt in the night To see the face of your love through the tears And another man's body pounding tight in your own And in your heart build a bridge that would span the next sixty-one years He'd always been kind, you know But the war took his spark So his soul was unable to dance And the time blended slowly While the roof held the rain as the days became one But I always remember the time when he went off to France. Well, by a curious coincidence, talking about home and away, we have a poem now from Nick Pollard, who we'll have heard on side one. And Nick Pollard is talking home and away. Talking home and away. Sounds daft. She can't say such long words. Tea time, watching home and away, she came out with it. Punjabi, she said. A nursery rhyme, Mum. I had to ring the school. Told them, that headmistress too. She's English, not foreign. It isn't Bradford, where we live. Not as if it's French, where she might go on holiday. Multiracial community. Headmistress spelled it out, I spat. Where my kid talks Punjabi? 
then whose community is that? And as if by magic or design, we now have Foreign by Mike Hoy. Another tie-in with uh, zooming off to war and coming back again. So Mike explores the foreignness of everything that isn't sort of English. And uh, so here we go. Let's have another little chuckle with Mike Hoy. Foreign. Languages are a bind, aren't they? Foreign ones, I mean. I never got to grips with speaking foreign. Maggie used to say I had enough trouble speaking English, but she were like that, sarcastic. We never learnt that stuff at school. I mean, we had loads of French teachers, but they were all useless. Used to burst into tears and run out at classroom. The blokes and all. We used to have bets on how long they'd last at our school. Three weeks and two days with record. One French teacher left after 15 minutes after Oak Beresford put a mouse in her hair. Another had a fit when this rubber snake fell off ceiling onto a lap. We used to booby-trap classrooms, see? Little buggers we were. Never thought we might want to speak foreign one day. It were a problem in Italy, language. I like sunshine and why everyone went to bed in afternoon. Not that me and Maggie did, though at kids, see, and Maggie had gone off sex. She spoke Italian and got into conversation with everyone. Kept taking off and leaving me to look after kids on beach. It weren't until I lost them that I realised how handicapped I were. I'd been reading this thriller I bought at airport where every other character was a psychopathic murderer. In the book, I mean, not the airport. I can't remember what it was called or who wrote it, but we were dead good. When I looked up at the end of a chapter, I was surrounded by topless women and foreign blokes, but the kids had disappeared. I raced up and down, shouting them, Dylan! Jerry Lee! Cassius! I tried asking people, but they just shrugged their shoulders and wouldn't speak English. Even when I held three fingers up and said, Bambino's Losto. Maggie had gone off to some church or art gallery, and I went round in circles until the topless American bird took pity on me. She said I should go back to hotel and get them to phone police. She were called Betty and were with an Italian bloke, Paolo. He were no help, Paolo. Well, they tend towards jealousy, Italian blokes. And I found kids at hotel. They were eating ice cream and pushing some Germans into the swimming pool. Not a care in world. I met Betty again next day and we got on right well. Her and Paolo came to stay with me when they came to England the year after and I went to visit them after Maggie kicked me out. He never got over his jealousy though, Paolo. Even when I moved in with this Italian bird, Maria had been set up for me by Betty. We went out dancing, four of us, and I finished up spending night in Maria's posh high-rise apartment and then moving me gear in. I thought I'd got it made. Maria and her flatmate did all cooking. I spent me days with Betty, who spoke fluent Italian, and me nights with Maria, who spoke good English. I thought I might learn some Italian in bed, but I didn't. Nothing that I could use out of bed anyway. So when Betty had to fly to States on business, and Maria had to look after her sick mother, her a bit snookered. The day they left, I lost key to Maria's apartment. I got into the building by hanging around until somebody else went in, and Maria's flatmate let me into the apartment. But toilet had blocked, and it had been sealed off until it could be fixed. Maria's flatmate were off to spend weekend with her boyfriend. Well, she'd gone before implications sunk in. This was Friday night, not having a key, I couldn't go out. And I couldn't use Lou. If I'd been able to speak foreign, I'd have gone next door and explained. But I didn't even have a phrase book, and I couldn't think of any sign language that weren't rude. The only person I could phone were Paolo, and he were no help. Didn't ask me over to stay with him, did he? He told me to use a piece of newspaper and then drop it over I-Rise balcony. I were disgusted. What if somebody were walking underneath? 
No, no, wait until there is no one's in sight. Well, I couldn't do that, not being foreign, so I pissed in B-Day and lived on boiled eggs for two days watching television I couldn't understand. When Maria's flatmate didn't come back on Monday, I made no apologies for packing and going back to England. Maria thought I'd abandon her and wouldn't have anything more to do with me. I was right fond of Maria. I might still be living with her, enjoying all that Italian sunshine and stuff, if only I could speak foreign. You're probably thinking it serves me right for all them French teachers who had nervous breakdowns, but none of that were my fault. I was one of the few kids who had nothing to do with lobbing mice and snakes at them or putting drawing pins on the chairs. Oak Beresford masterminded all that. I saw him recently, Oak Beresford. He spends most of his time in Greece and Spain. He's a travel firm rep now. He's multi-bloody lingual, is Oak Beresford. And right here we have Nick Pollard inculcating his little brother into the family wisdom. The family wisdom seems to be tribal and Nick seems to have spread that across to America and I think it mostly consists of consuming beer and looking at young women. But why not? That's what young men are wont to do. Nick Pollard Little brother receives the family wisdom. Little brother receives the family wisdom at Kingsdown. A pint of moose antler medicine this last three bees. A glass arkwell mould with memories crammed down against fear, little brother, of real beaver fever. The incontinence of the continent of mammon permeating Rocky's meltwater beneath heap big shopping mall where baby iron horses putter can canyons. You might not be same tribe when next we make old joke celebrated of locals in pub across road from brewery. Wait long um bar. Lorry stuck um traffic lights. Blocked beer pipes. Meantime, even the totems of this reservation may be lost. Now, moose heads all, myths garbled, even of ourselves. Antlers overspread, locked inextricably to pants ever feebly, weather blind, frayed upon the blasted steppe. And now Nick follows that with Old Man White Lion. I know this pub, it's on London Road in Sheffield. I think we once had an argument about whether it was on London Road or Chesterfield Road. And in actual fact, it's where one road becomes the other. But unfortunately for me and my argument, it has a plaque nailed on it that says London Road. So I lost, there you go. Uh, my loss, but everybody's gain. We have Old Man White Lion by Nick Pollard. Old Man, White Lion. In this old pub, wondering how long before they redecorate, make some travesty of Never Never for Nouveau Victoriana, in which I'll play a fusty old man with a caution of wasted life converted into a treasure storehouse of community recollections, a relic human as the job lock kitsch. Picture in the corner of me, see it? Drifty, Roomy eyes, dribbling memories, unreliably steaming amidst the snug smoke, may be heard, may be yawned. It's only for me, I'm telling them, but I'll have a pint with you anyway. Supping mine now in reverence, communion with the should-be-familiar libations poured upon the towel of Tetley. Here the stained old battered paint, stained old dyslexic window, stained old last refuge of something already forgotten. Over the bar... The lights and bottles and procession of faces appear as the whirling view through an open TARDIS door. 
Already cold draughts rush between distorted frames. The old house creaks its orbit round the earth until it one day is shrugged free. And now here's Nick Pollard again with a recollection of uh, Summer County. It's a day in summer in his grandfather's allotment, by the sounds of it. Sounds like a family affair. I hope they all enjoyed it. Nick Pollard, Summer County. Summer County. In the allotment, straw hats swivel. Smoke glass circles sight each other. Heads like turrets crack crusty frowns. The sun beats down. Grandad's hoe falls among the melons. The boy's nails poise, pinch irritant skin flakes, white on raw. Get your picking, Michael! Stooping, Grandad piggybacks him, snacks hanging gumbo. My Grandad won prizes for leeks, he says. The sullen child wonders what's for tea, and reaching for a lantern pepper, very red. Get your picking, Michael! The children burn so easily. This poem marks the end of my war collection of poems and it could apply to either the First or the Second World War and I leave it to you to make your mind up. I actually think it's probably more like more like maybe the First World War. So, But it's entirely up to you and it, poetry is a very subjective experience and what the heck, it's only a poem anyway. So here we have The Journey Back by Bill Allerton. I'd lived for so long amidst the sweet taint of death Though we'd bathed well in Pompey, a complete change of kit Watched the grey dust of France flowing down English drains Still, the taste of corruption hung under my breath As we marched to the station to stand at our ease And wait to be packaged in rough khaki browns Onto velveteen seats in the hot waiting anger of trains We were restive now, not alert Soldiering had become just a game we played with loud voices and boots, guns with no bullets, orders without words, nothing more than a bark, forming ranks on the platform to put steel rails to shame. The steam wove amongst us like a mist from the Somme, tarnished our buttons but not the expressions on the faces of lads coming back from their leap in the dark. For the first time in ages I'd thought of young John, I looked for that smile beneath an irreverent cap, heard his low chuckle, Despite all the slaughter, felt his hand gripping mine, then remembered he'd gone to become part of that nation of wilderness boys in a dark sea of mud, shouting at God, their mouths filled with water. Our squad was to board last, and we watched the melee of ancient young men on a stormy brown wave, swaying rifles for masts, kit bag buffers between, behaving just like the children that we used to be. The carriages bit them off one at a time to fill them those that never seemed sated. Their doors swept the platforms, picking them clean. The whistles were echoes from out of our past. They flushed out the pigeons from Victorian archers, awakening memories of a fast-falling shell as we huddled together to wait for the blast. The steam exhaust coughed like a howitzer's sigh, then the wheels snatched us back from the place where we'd flown to commune with lost friends. In our own private hell. We sat by the windows and rolled the months back. We marvelled at gardens, fields with soft grass, trees still with branches, blown with blossom like snow, perching birds eating butterflies while dressed all in black. 
People waved from the yards of railway houses. Their smiles lit our path, flying before us to show that beside their dove faces, war is a crow. We threaded the shires with men in warm browns, putting hands back to ploughs, tools hard on leather, feet back on pedals to deliver the mails that were promised but would never be sent across towns. We filled up the firesides with fathers and lovers, prodigal sons born again in the waste, but filled others with ache for a missing young face as we fled for our lives down the rails. With the miles counted off by the stations we knew, we fought for a space at a window or door so we could tell you that we'd been the first to see perhaps a spire or a chimney or the hospital flew, while others stacked playing cards or tightened their laces or stitched back the smiles that they'd held in safe keeping, and the younger ones shed tears from a dam that had burst. I searched for her face through a sea of flushed pride, waves tossed by fingers that tore at our clothes for the touch of a warrior come in from the cold as the shore rose to meet the incoming tide. We fought it together until she stood in my space, allied in hope and salt taste. We watched other women who had hoped for mistake and who waited for men they would now never hold. We stood there quite lost, our past was all splinters, but we still had our names, and from those we could build. I pulled her face close to mine and tasted her breath. She smelled of long summers, cold winters, tall trees, lush gardens, dark violets, kept promises, red poppies, and death. Right, we're getting towards the end ourselves now. Coming up next is The Angel by Mike Hoy. Perhaps a little bit of multiculturalism. And in today's world, I'm not sure how it sits, but we can't deny our past. Or the way we thought or felt or did things in the past. We can maybe regret things sometimes, but we can't deny them. They were. The past is a foreign country. So here we have The Angel by Mike Hoy. The angel who danced at the party was exotic and stunning, a dream, with eyes like palm-fringed almonds and smooth skin like coffee and cream. A dozen or more danced with her, but for me she danced all alone on a glittering cloud of incense at the door of some new pleasure dome. Her body was swathed in a sari. She delicately sipped at her drink. Her hair was black as tomorrow, black as dates, black as Indian ink. As she delicately nibbled the patty and passed me her wine glass for more, I saw her slim body naked on her native Bangladesh shore. She smiled and her face was a diamond. She turned then and swayed to the beat. She'd not said a single word to me, but my heart fluttered down to her feet. It was later when people were sleeping. Almost everyone else had gone home. It was after the party was over that I finally found her alone. I've been aching to touch you, I told her. Your lips were just made to be kissed. I'm very sorry, Doc, she said, belching. I'm afraid I'm too bloody pissed. You've been listening to Side 2 of Pieces of Eight, written and performed by members of Healy Writers Group. On Side 2 were 
Writer's Workshop by Andrew Howe. Looking Conspicuous by Mike Hoy. The Spangled Knight by Rene Croft. Now and Then by Mike Hoy. Godly Toys by Bill Allerton. When He Went to France by Bill Allerton. Home and Away by Nick Pollard. Foreign by Mike Hoy. Little Brother by Nick Pollard. Old Man White Lion by Nick Pollard. Summer County again by Nick Pollard. The Journey Back by Bill Allerton. The Angel by Mike Hoy with Rene Croft. Say a over the racks and cast your reeds upon the rolling waves. Just lay your fingers on the rails and you will find that without fail vibrations from the engine room. They're gonna get you home safe soon. Well, that's all for this week's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio. And if you've hit that subscribe button, you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time. So it's a goodbye from me and a... from Nelly. Bye-bye.